grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the seat in front of you. And um, we want you to uh, be able to use that so you can read with us. If you don't have a Bible, please, please walk out of here with that one. We want you to have a Bible in your home, so um, we, uh, we welcome you to take that. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to begin today in verse 22. And by the way, if you're in one of the Bibles of the churches, it's going to be on page 589, maybe to help you find it a little quicker. Um, but uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22, and this is what we read. It says, he, and that he is Jesus. It says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Today in our series that we've been in the middle of on the six main characters of Genesis... Uh, We're going to be taking a look at Isaac, who is Abraham's son. We talked about Abraham last week. Um, You'll recall that Abraham was an elderly man, 100 years old to be exact. And he had an elderly barren wife who was 90 years old to be exact. And, And about 25 years previous, when Abraham was 75, God had approached him and announced his intent to bless him and to make Abraham into a great nation. He also told him that this promise would be fulfilled, even though, remember, he was married to this woman who was infertile, couldn't have children. He, he told him that this promise would come about through his own natural-born son. Credible promise. But in a moment of, imp- of apparent doubt, have you ever been there where you just... You know there's a promise, and you just go, well, what if? Abraham and Sarah had a moment like that. And in that moment of apparent doubt, they they devised this ridiculous plan in order to take matters into their own hands and, and rush the fulfillment of God's promise. Sarah puts forth her servant girl, her slave girl named Hagar, and, and he, he, she suggests that maybe... Abraham ought to just sleep with her. Notice that Abraham was not real quick to object to this plan put forth by his wife. Says he should sleep with her so that she so that he could have an heir from his own body, and with her help, with 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 Hagar's help, they could see God's promise fulfilled. How many of you would guess that it didn't work out that way? The result of this ill-conceived plan was a woman who was pregnant and subsequently dismissed twice by her mistress and later just dismissed, just despised and dismissed. The result of this pregnancy was a child, a young man who was abandoned and grew up fatherless. And most of all, the result of this was a brokenhearted father who loved that son and had to send him away. Let me tell you something. This 
When you first get introduced to the scriptures, this, this people kind of are shocked by this. But the Bible, the Holy Spirit's intent in the Bible, and I want to, I want to even tell you guys this, you, you students who are here this weekend. The Bible is not a goody-two-shoe book. The Bible never, ever spares us the gory, unflattering details of the lives of so-called Bible heroes. God wants us to see. He does this. He, he lets us see all behind the, the curtain to the worst of the details of our lives, of the lives of those people, because he wants us to see that we're all critically flawed. Did you know that? We're all critically flawed. No matter what you think of yourself, you, you were born broken. But that's not all. He wants us to know that in that critical, just brokenness, that flaw, he, he wants us to know that we all desperately need him. He wants us to know that he alone knows what he's doing. He wants us to know that his way is best. He wants us to know that we would do well to wait patiently for his timing. The Bible says they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength, they'll run and not grow weary, they'll walk and not faint, they'll mount up with wings like eagles. There's, there's a great reward for those who will patiently wait on the Lord. But nevertheless, that's not what my message is about this morning. These missteps by Abraham and Sarah did not deter God from what he's decreed to do. Some of you think your mistakes have, have derailed God somehow. Let me tell you something, if that's the truth, you have a teeny tiny little God. Because your mistakes, your missteps cannot derail the plans of the Almighty God. They can't. And and so God had decreed what he was going to do. And so in good time, after waiting about 25 years, like I said, Sarah conceived. And nine months later, she brought forth a son. And we're told that they named this child Isaac, which in their native tongue meant laughter. Now, why do you think they called this child laughter? I, I imagine... It was because the joy that this child brought into their home as the fulfillment of the promise. I also think they named him Laughter because they knew that it was beyond ridiculous, beyond ludicrous, that a 90-year-old woman should be bouncing a baby boy on her recently replaced knee. Either way... Either way, his, revi- his arrival into their home was a joyous one. The promises that God made could now be fulfilled since Abraham had an heir. He had an heir from his own body through which to become a great nation, through which to become a nation that, 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 that through which all other nations would be blessed, just as God has said. What an exciting time. 25 years they've waited for this moment, this, this explosion of, of, of seeing God do what God had promised to do. They'd walked, they'd been faithful, and they'd seen it. And it's this very fact that makes the opening words of Genesis 22 so incredibly stunning. Genesis 22.1 says this, After these things, the birth of Isaac and different things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, Abraham. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the, ma- the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if we 
didn't know the end of the story, we would not believe that the God who promised this child to his friend Abraham would now demand his life. Can God, can the Father literally be that cruel? Take note, don't miss it, don't read over it, of the particularly stinging reminders. These like sharp arrows that go right through Abraham's heart, these stinging reminders that God lays out in verse 2. He doesn't merely say, take your son up to the land of Moriah and offer him there. Instead, he adds two additional clauses in his command that magnify the depth of that command. He says, take your only son. See, Isaac is the child of promise. There isn't another one. Waiting in the wings. Sarah's not pregnant at this time. There's, there's no one waiting to fulfill the brother's destiny. Abraham at this point was probably somewhere approaching 120 years old. They think that, that Isaac was probably between 13 and 20 at this time. And, and so he's approaching 120 years old at this time. That would make Sarah 110. Barring another miracle, which God absolutely had not promised, there would be no more children. This was his only son. The greater issue was that God said to Abraham that Isaac was the son whom you love. That boy, gosh, he was the light in Abraham's eyes. He was the the joy in Abraham's heart. God could have taken anything. God could have taken everything. And it would not have been a loss compared to his only boy, his laughter for whom he'd waited so There are some here, some in this group right here, who have gone through the terrible experience of losing children. I don't pretend as I stand here to imagine what your pain must be like. I, I can't even pretend. I remember when the boys were little, when my four sons were little. I, I, I don't know why this is. It's just the devil, I guess. But I would sometimes wake up in a cold sweat after having a nightmare that they had been the victim of some tragedy. It's terrible. And as bad as that is, and as bad as the circumstance that might have taken your son or your daughter, can you imagine losing a child not to an accident, not to a disease, but to the command of God and commanded by your own hand? Who could endure that? Who, who, could, who could do that? But Abraham did. With no pause in the story, no, no, no indication that Abraham took two weeks off to consider the command of the Lord. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 22, verse 3, the very next verse, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, he took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And when Abraham saw this place, God told him to go in the distance. He told his two servants to remain there while he and Isaac continued on. He laid the wood for the sacrifice squarely on on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the knife that would be the instrument of his son's death and the fire with which to light the sacrifice. And I can only imagine that with Abraham, he was a good father and there were tears in his eyes. There was pain in his heart. But the thing that we mustn't miss from the scriptures is that the pain in his heart was mingled with incredible faith in his God. 
When Isaac says to him on the way up that mountain, he says, Behold, Father, the, the fire and, and, and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? When we've sacrificed before, there's always a lamb. I don't see a lamb. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That faith in Abraham replied this is such a beautiful statement. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And up they went. Abraham held to his confidence even on that dark day. The writer of Hebrews gives us an even better insight to Abraham's heart. It says in Hebrews chapter eleven seventeen, it says, By faith, we looked at a little bit of this chapter last week. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, Shall your offspring be named? He considered, get this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The next verse tells us that they went on, both of them together. One thing was certain, wherever this road was going, they were doing it together. They were going together. Aren't you grateful for faithful people who will walk with you in the darkest places? I love Proverbs 17, 17. It says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Like that. When they arrived at the designated place, the grieving father built an altar of stones. And after doing that, he arranged the wood upon it, and and he took cords, and he bound his submissive son, and he laid him on the altar where he was destined to die. What agony. I, I can't imagine what agony must have filled his heart as he raised the knife above his head, preparing to plunge it into the heart of his beloved son. Did he make eye contact with him at the last minute? Did, did he look and long and plead? Did he have second thoughts? No, no. Placed all of his trust. Listen to me carefully. He placed all of his trust in the goodness of God when it made the least sense to do so. The Bible tells us in Hebrews, I read it last week, that he had judged him faithful who had promised. Do the math with Abraham. He knew that he had heard God say, I will bless you and I will make a great nation out of you. And he had heard the promise from God's own mouth that he would have a son from his own body in his own age and that that son would be the one through whom the promise was fulfilled. He was placing all of his confidence in the goodness of God at the most critical moment. Would he doubt him? Would would Abraham doubt God when things look difficult? Well, let's think about it. Didn't he do that once? Didn't Abraham do that once before when he slept with Sarah's maidservant? No. See, even in that, God had proved himself faithful. So Abraham's economy in his mind must have been that even if his son died by his own knife, God would find a way to keep his word. Abraham placed all of his confidence in a good God's word. This is where the rubber meets the road. Young people, students here this weekend, where the rubber meets the road, I believe that everyone who truly wants to follow Jesus, I, everyone who truly wants to follow Jesus, will make the same trip to the same altar to make the same sacrifice. I believe it. Jesus was clear in his word that if or until you're willing to give up everything to follow him, he is not precious to you. 
until you're willing to lay everything else down and say, Jesus alone is my treasure, then you don't even have him. You don't even have him as your treasure. He cannot be your savior if he's not your Lord. Luke 14, 33 is the clearest, most concise. I've probably quoted the scripture to you guys a thousand times. It's the most clear, concise statement of what I'm trying to say. Jesus, the words of Jesus Christ himself. Any one of you who does not renounce what? All that he has cannot be my disciple. As long as I've got one thing that I'm grasping to, Jesus is of no use to me. No use. This doesn't mean that we live as monks, owning nothing, enjoying nothing, taking vows of poverty and begging on the street to live. What it means is that the instant we become believers, we place everything we have, everything we cherish, everything we are at Jesus' feet and at his disposal. Most of us, I know I do, we carry a mental catalog of of our stuff. We know what we have and we either boast in it or we're trying to get more. But Jesus tells us repeatedly to relinquish it, to lay it down, to sacrifice it. Jesus told a rich young ruler one day to sell everything he had and give it to the poor so, so that he could follow him. So that he could follow him. What is Jesus saying? His stuff, this, this ruler's stuff, was the obstacle to his fellowship with and discipleship by Jesus. It was getting in the way of what Jesus had planned for his life. But see... Don't misunderstand me. This is not some, like I said, vow of poverty thing. It's more than our material possessions. The Gospels tell us to to reprioritize even our most prized relationships so that Jesus is in first place with no competitors. Luke 14, 26, one of the most difficult scriptures in all of the book. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own Father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Wow. See, Jesus is not contradicting himself and saying that now, new rule, now we got to hate people closest to us. When in other places he said that we should love our neighbors and even our enemies. He's not contradicting himself. What he's saying, he's saying that when a choice has to be made... He wins. If you're going to follow him, when it comes to a choice, he gets it. He gets it. He, he gets the decision over your spouse, over your kids, over your parents, over your siblings, over your friends. He gets the win. Jesus wins whenever there's a decision to be made. People who have a sacrifice-free Christianity, who have never been up that same mountain to make that same sacrifice, people who have a sacrifice-free Christianity that grants everything and, and costs nothing, do not have a Christianity that fits any description in the Bible. So there Abraham is, knife is raised, going to obey no matter what, when the atmosphere is literally shattered, just exploded by this heavenly shout, Abraham, stop! This voice said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now Abraham, who reminded his son that God would provide, remember that? He said God would provide. He looks up and he sees a ram, this this sheep, this mountain goat, stuck in the thicket by its horns. Provided by God, 
to become a satisfactory burnt offering. And Isaac is spared. Now get this. As a memorial, Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. On the mountain, they said, the Lord will provide. In, in, in Hebrew, that's Yahweh Yarah, the Lord will provide. It became a saying among Abraham's people, on the mountain of the Lord, he will provide because of the life-sparing mercy of God shown that day. Now, shortly after this, Abraham's people would find themselves on a walk with God. They were beloved and cherished by him. They had, he or he had chosen them rather out of all the nations of the earth that they might be his people and that he might be their God. When they were in trouble, he rescued them by sending 10 plagues to torment their enemies while protecting them with his mighty hand. When, when they were being pursued by those same enemies, God opened a way literally through the sea so they could pass through on dry ground. And then he caused that same sea to crash down on their enemies, destroying them forever. He said, you'll never see him again. Soon after this deliverance, though, those people began to grumble. They began to complain. And even though he led them with heat in the night and shade in the day through the desert, he fed them with food from the sky and with water from the rock. But they repaid his kindness by building an idol in the form of a cow and calling it by his name. He didn't leave them, though. In fact, he provided from the mountain again. He provided his law so that they could approach him. He led them into their own land. He evicted the inhabitants of that land and handed them cities they didn't build, fields they didn't plant, wells they didn't dig. But they responded by doing what was right in their own eyes. As they grew and appointed kings, it didn't get better, but rather it got worse. Most of the kings led the entire nation into idolatry and into all kinds of sin until finally God permanently dispersed five-sixths of them and sent the remaining one-sixth into exile. If any people ever deserved to be hauled up to a mountain and sacrificed, it was this bunch. But God himself didn't have just this people. God also had a son. And like Isaac to Abraham, Jesus was the only son. There wasn't going to be another. He was it. The only begotten son. And wow, did he love this son. This was his only son whom he loved. And they went everywhere together, just like Abraham and Isaac. In fact, they had not been separated throughout all eternity. Unlike Israel, this son was completely, spotlessly innocent. He had always done exactly what his father required, and he delighted in doing so. And that's why Peter says about him, He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. So God took this innocent son, and like Isaac, he loaded a wooden cross onto his back. And like Isaac, Jesus, too, climbed a mountain. And like Isaac, he, too, was bound to the instrument of his death. And like obedient Abraham, Peter says that he continued entrusting himself to him who judges. But unlike for Isaac, this is where their stories separate, unlike for Isaac, No voice from heaven came to stop the death blow that was aimed at Jesus. No scream of shout from the heavenly. The Son, on the other hand, absorbed all the wrath that was deserved by wicked Israel 
as well as the rest of the world, for all of their ingratitude and their rebellion, no substitute was found at the last minute to spare the son's life. You know why? Because Jesus was the substitute. He was the ram so that all of us Isaacs could get off scot-free. The just was crucified so the unjust, that's us, could be forgiven and could be justified. Again, Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been. Now we read that scripture, rightfully so, a lot of times when we're praying for the sick and talking about physical healings. But I just want to tell you, just for theological clarity, precision, that is not what that scripture is saying. It's talking about the fatal wound that sin has dealt to our souls, our spirits. And the Bible says because he was wounded, because he was lashed and crucified and went through all that he did, that now that fatal death wound that was in your soul is now healed. What a word. He was mocked. He was punched. His beard was ripped out. He was flogged with a cat of nine tails spit upon. A crown of thorns was shoved upon his head. He was beaten with a reed. His hands and his feet were nailed to the wood that he carried. There it was. Oh, folks, listen to me. There it was on the mountain of the Lord that God ultimately provided. It was there that he provided mercy and grace and forgiveness, and righteousness, and peace with God, and boldness, that we might approach him with a clean conscience. Lastly, Peter tells us, because of grace given at the cross, that we were like sheep, we were straying like sheep, but now we've returned. We've come down from the mountain, and we've returned to the shepherd and overseers of our souls, who is Christ the Lord. But like Hebrews tells us that Abraham received his son back from the dead through faith. Let me tell you something. Be very clear on this point. There was no way in this world that God was going to leave his beloved and innocent son to decay in a tomb. Wasn't going to happen. So three days after his death, he burst forth from the grave, alive and well, never to suffer again, but only to be enthroned as the King of kings and the Lord of lords over this universe forever and ever. And now all of us, who are like Isaac, who've been slated for destruction, are able to walk away free and forgiven because John the Baptist pointed to him one day and said, look, there he is, there's the substitute, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the ram caught in the thicket so that we could get up off the altar and he would take our place. Thank God that he's provided the perfect, effective sacrifice for all who believe on him, on Calvary, on the mountain of the Lord. Do you know, listen to me carefully, take an honest assessment of your heart. Don't play games. Come on, what's the benefit of that for you? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven? Do you know what it's like to have your sin removed? Do you know what it's like To have a clean conscience simply because your sins have been washed away. Nothing like it in all the world. Man, I'm telling you, I remember when it happened to me. There's nothing like it. You were never made. Listen, some of you are thinking, man, I just got to fight this thing through. You know, only the strong survive and all that other baloney you tell yourselves. But you were never made to carry the weight of your own sin. You're not strong enough. 
but he is. The substitute can carry it. I love Isaiah 59.1. It says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save. Aren't you grateful for that? And his ear is not too deaf to hear. That means if you cry out to him, he will come right now with his strong arm and he'll save you. Can you trust him? Can you trust him this morning to bear the weight of your sin forever? Will you perish or will you look up and see the ram provided by God and caught in the thicket and be freed from your death? There is no better picture, no greater illustration, no more significant reminder of what the Lamb of God has done for us than we see in the Lord's Supper. When you see the bread, remember that it was not you that were broken. Do you realize that when you see this bread, it reminds you that someone was broken for you? You weren't broken. You weren't sacrificed. Somebody else was for you. Someone was sacrificed for you, and you are the benefactor of that act of mercy. When you see the blood-red juice in the cup, remember that it's not your blood. It's not. It's the poured-out blood of Christ representing a new covenant of forgiveness and grace that is freely given to all who will believe and receive. Ah, but when you taste these elements, when you take them, remember that you've been invited not just to some memory-jogging exercise, but to take Christ into yourself, to consume Him, to receive His life as your own, to be transformed by His Spirit from the inside out. Thank God that we have a substitute who rescues us from destruction and gives us a brand new life. And if you have no other reason to praise God this morning, that what I just told you about Jesus being your substitute is enough impetus for you to praise Him for the rest of eternity. If He gave you no other act of kindness, you need no other evidence of the love of God than what He did on Calvary for you. So we're going to not just rush to the table today, we're going to prepare ourselves. So I want you all to stand, and we're going to go to the Lord and worship one more time. If there's things that you need to do to do business with God, do it. Repent of sin. If you need to put your trust in Him for the first time, do it. If you need to recommit your life to Him, do it. If you just need to spend these few minutes in worship, just throwing thankfulness up into the heavens for what He's done for you, do it. But prepare your hearts to come and consume, to feast on the Lord Jesus in gratitude that He is your substitute.